Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to our different venue. Um, it's only tonight that we're going to be in the church. You may be pleased or regretful about um, But it's lovely to start off this year's um, Lent Lectures uh, welcoming Ken and Ken's assistant, who's actually got all the power, <laughs> um, to talk about, as you can see, rights and wrongs uh, in the occupied West Bank. And um, those of you who were in church on Sunday, um, probably whether this church or anywhere else, will have been reflecting on Jesus's temptations. And on the way here, I was thinking about how in this terribly troubled area of land, how things always seem to have been extremely difficult. And they were no easier, I think, in Jesus's time with the Roman occupation than they are in many respects now. But Ken has some intimate knowledge of it and will be sharing that with us. But before we start, I think it would be nice to commend the whole of this series of lectures and tonight's ones particularly in prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, when our brothers and sisters are persecuted so horribly in so many countries, we thank you that we're free to meet together. And we ask that you'll bless this series of lectures, and particularly Ken as he speaks to us this evening. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Ken, thank you very much. Thank you. I would like to start by uh, thanking uh, John by... Uh, for his organisation of these uh, these talks, and to Finch Hampstead for hosting them, and to you, of course, for all coming to uh, to listen. That's very good, and uh, I hope you find it interesting. There's going to be lots of time at the uh, at the end for uh, questions and discussion, and this is one of the subjects that many people don't actually know a lot about. So if you if you feel it, there's many things you don't know about, it, you know you're not alone. Many people in this country, particularly, don't know a lot about this situation. I'm going to start with this document here. It, it's called Kairos Palestine. It was published in 2009 and it's called Kairos Palestine, A Moment of Truth. It was produced by the 13 churches in Jerusalem and they all agreed. It's one of the few times all the churches have ever agreed on anything in Jerusalem. So it was really quite a um, an outstanding decision and it called on churches worldwide to work for just peace in the Holy Land it was inspired really by the work in South Africa of bringing an end to apartheid so it, so it has a very good pedigree and, uh, and it reflected the lack of progress in the political process which has been going on for, for many many years and here's a picture of our uh, our bishops, Tracy and I, uh, uh, went to, to Greenbelt for several years. If you don't know Greenbelt, it's a Christian festival, about 20,000 people. And we started in 2011, and it coincided with a three-year focus on Israel and Palestine. And before that, I have to say, I knew very little other than from my Bible. And we learned from, uh, from people with first-hand experience, including people like an Israeli gunship pilot, who, who refused basically to carry on with the job and said, I'm, I'm not going to do this. 
And so there are lots of very inspiring stories which start, started us thinking about Israel and Palestine and, and about a possible visit there. We'd never been before. And then Bishop John announced he was taking a pilgrimage in 2013. So that seemed like a call from God to go. And here we are uh, on the Jordan, the River Jordan, with Bishops John, Andrew and Colin. We had Archdeacon uh, Karen with us as well. So we had a a pretty good passage through all the religious sites when you turn up with uh, three bishops and an archdeacon. It uh, sees you, you know, your way is clear. Everybody stands aside. Well, it was a life-changing experience. This is the scene when we had a, a Eucharist by the Sea of Galilee. And there were tears in Bishop Andrew's eyes when he stood there for the first time to take this Eucharist. It was really moving, and the scene was just... I mean, you, you can just get a, a glimpse of what it must, must be like, but it, it was absolutely wonderful. And if you haven't been to Israel, Palestine, I would really recommend a visit. And we had a wonderful 10-day pilgrimage there. We visited most of the Christian sites, but we also got a glimpse of, of other things. If you haven't heard of it before, this is the, the separation wall, and you can't travel through uh, Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories of course, because of course it's not a Palestinian state, it's the occupied territories. And you can't do that without seeing the impact of the conflict. These, uh, these towers here just bear the scars of people's throwing firebombs at them and, and protesting in a, in a fairly futile way. The separation wall is 700 miles long and it, and it goes in a very, very torturous route around what, you, what is the only internationally agreed um, border, let's say. It's a, a, a disputed border and it separates the West Bank from the rest of Israel. The allocation of resources in, in the West Bank and Israel is uh, very complicated, particularly affecting land and water. I'll touch on that a bit. And there are soldiers and checkpoints everywhere. I got on a bus and there was a young lady sitting opposite, across the aisle from me and you know, we were gone about 10 miles before I realised she had a machine gun on her lap. And she was, you know, that's very common that everywhere you go, there are soldiers. They have a huge, huge army there. Um, to handle the situation and um, we met lots of local people and they had lots of different stories and it's sometimes difficult to reconcile those stories because they came from a different viewpoint well I, I felt moved to action and during 2013 I looked at possible ways that I could get involved and then at Greenbelt this next document was uh, this was, was published. This is Kairos Britain. So the call went out in 2009 and in 2013 British Christians responded with this which calls on Christians in Britain to work for a just peace. So this is our plan of action. And uh, part of that was Kairos Britain was set up as a national organisation to try and promote the, uh, the time fraction document. So, we came home from Greenbelt and went to our PCC, as you do, and said, we need to do something about this. And uh, PCC said, draw up a plan. So went away, came back at the next PCC meeting and said, here's the plan. 
and uh, they agreed it. So then we had a plan. <coughs> so I uh, decided as part of this plan I would go back to Israel on my own and I'd help the congregation to learn more. The plan was essentially here to be aware of the situation in Israel-Palestine because it's very complicated, takes a lot of time to understand it, to reflect prayerfully on it and to respond faithfully and courageously. And it was going to take us six months, around about June last year. So, I'm off to Israel, this time not with a bishop, not, not with a, you know, a guided tour, not, not with the coach, not with all the, the help. I was on my own. So um, I thought, who do I know in the, in the Holy Land? And I, I knew people from the Holy Land Trust, which is in Bethlehem. So I contacted them, Sammy Awad, the chief executive, and said, do you think I can come out to stay in Bethlehem? And he came back straight away and told me, well, yes, fine, we'll, we'll facilitate your visit and we'll arrange accommodation. So I said, oh, that's wonderful. So he said, okay, so we propose that you stay in a refugee camp. So I said, oh, really? Yes, okay. If that's what you think is a good idea. And uh, he said, yes. He said, we've got an ideal Muslim family for you to stay with. And I said, oh, really? Have you? Okay, this is, uh, this is going to be a double new experience for me. And um, so they said, yeah, it'll all be arranged. So, so off I set and... Uh, after catching the plane and then a, a shared taxi and then finally an Arab bus through the checkpoint and I, and I was dropped off in the middle of uh, Bethlehem and thought, heck, what am I going to do now? Anyway, they eventually found me and uh, brought me to where I was going to stay and it was in the, the refugee camp. So I did actually go onto the web to find out what this refugee camp was like because, you know, I mean, we know of refugee camps and I had not the slightest idea what this was going to be like. I thought, you know, is there going to be... Well, what is there going to be? You know, is, what am I going to face? So I had no idea at all what it was going to be like. I'll show you what it was like in a moment. But what I'm going to do, first of all, is just talk about the Holy Land. Right. So, this, this is my knowledge of the Holy Land at the time of Jesus. Right? It comes from the back of my Bible. Yeah? Not, not from anything else. And this is what I knew about the Holy Land. So, I sort of knew that Jerusalem was down here in the south. Galilee's up in the north. I didn't know. It's about 100 miles between them, but I do now. So, up here, you've got all the Capernaum, Nazareth, Cana, um, and down here, Bethlehem, just a few miles outside Jerusalem. And on there, the, the borders and so on are, are fairly vague. You've got Judea in the south, you've got Galilee in the north, Samaria somewhere in, in the middle, and, uh, and and so that's where all our Bible stories take place. And and, and I was sort of fairly secure with that knowledge and, until I got there. And of course, it, it's sort of really an eye-opener when you get there, particularly because of this, which is the geography. Now, now this is a rift valley. And in this rift valley, just about here, is Jericho. And Jericho is the lowest inhabited place on earth. It's 400 metres below sea level. And you probably know the Dead Sea is, um, is, uh, is dead because it's full of salt and it's the lowest sea on earth. 
What I didn't quite realise is Jerusalem is in this this line here. East and West Bank. We see that in the minutes, and this is more or less where the wall goes. And in that indentation there is Jerusalem, and just outside it, inside the West Bank is Bethlehem. And and the difference in height between Bethlehem and, and Jerusalem here, and Jericho there, is the height of Snowdon. So, so you are going from a thousand metres up, where it's actually quite cool, can be quite cool in the winter, snow, down to somewhere that's quite, quite warm. And when you read that a man was travelling, the Good Samaritan story, a man was travelling from Jer- Jerusalem to Jericho, when you see that walk, you think, my goodness me, that is such a, an incredible, steep, stony um, path. And so a lot, a lot of my experiences about, about the terrain that was there, of course you don't see from the, from the Bible at all. The arid desert around Hebron, the lush Jordan Valley, and we'll talk a little bit about the Jordan Valley later on. This is low-lying, this is very fertile here. Um, all these um, add colour to my knowledge of the, uh, of the land now. And so to touch on the modern politics... Matt's not terribly showing up very well here. But okay, so there's our Israel as we know it. These are the occupied territories. West Bank here, Gaza here, completely separated, um, with, with no connection between them at all. So in Israel, we've got about 8 million people, and 20% of the Israeli citizens are Arabs. The others are, are Jews. So there's a fair proportion that are Arabs in Israel itself here. These are people that, that have been there and stayed there from before 1948. In Palestine here, where the refugees fled to, population about four and a half million and getting on for three million in the West Bank. And most of the Palestinians are, are Muslims. So here's the, uh, the refugee camp I stayed in. I was actually in this, this apartment here, these doors here. And uh, this was uh, formed in 1948 when the, uh, the Jewish forces attacked the Arab villages. The Arabs fled, many of them fled into Bethlehem, and, and they ended up being refugees. So they ended up just, just being in tents for seven years. After seven years, they realised they weren't going to go back, so they started building little tiny huts and so on. And, and since that time, they've been there ever since. And, and so now, they've put a lot of concrete into it. It's a very interesting construction, because there are no building rules or permits or anything. You just get some breeze blocks and just put them up. And so you just go straight up. So you see here, there aren't really you know, curves and gutters and paths and so on, you just put concrete on the ground and concrete above and put a piece of wire up and put some electricity up <coughs> and there you are this is Ayag um, that I stayed with his grandfather was the, the sheikh, was the head of the village and uh, when the, uh, the, the Israeli troops attacked the village they all fled and so all of the, the villagers live in this street, they've all ended up in this street, so they're you know, their children and their grandchildren, all in the street, they've just carried on living there. 
So when I said, what number house do you live at? He looked at me puzzled because he said, I don't know how house numbers because it's just Ayad's street, you know, which is Ayad lives here and all his family. So it's just known by the area. And there are signs everywhere of the hope that the Palestinians will return to their houses. When they left their houses, they were told, some of them were told, you know, you have to leave now, but you can come back in a week. So they locked the front door and took the key with them. And lots of families have got the key still, but their house is long gone, it's been demolished. Um, but they, they keep the key and it's a symbol of their hope to return. And these are the villages here from which all the people fled to come in to um, Bethlehem. So the camp is inside the wall. This is the eight metre wall. And I, I said it's very convoluted. Um, just next to the refugee camp is a very important religious site. It's the tomb of Rachel. And, uh, and it, was, it was in Bethlehem. But for political reasons, it's now in Israel. Because the wall has come snaking around, around here, up here, around there, back there, so that that part is on the other side. And you can't go the other side of the wall unless you've got a permit and so Ayad's children that I stayed with have never been to Jerusalem. It's five miles away. They've, they've never been to the... They, they're Muslims. They've never been to the mosque in Jerusalem. They're not allowed to go to the mosque in Jerusalem. And they've never seen the sea. It's only 20 miles from the sea. I got on a bus, went to Tel Aviv to see the sea. And they can't go to the sea because they're not allowed to travel through the checkpoint. This is the UN office. Ayad's grandfather, when he, he, he arrived as a sheikh, and he had to get a job, so he got a job distributing food to the refugees. So he went from being a sheikh to being a labourer. And if you know the, uh, the honour that Arabs have, going from being a sheikh to being a labourer is hard, uh, very hard. The, all the families, all the people here have an identity card that says they're UN refugees which means they're stateless they don't even belong, they're not even citizens of Bethlehem let, let alone Palestine, if they could be citizens of Palestine or Israel they are stateless, they can't go any, anywhere so what were my experiences in the refugee camp well when I checked on the internet and, and I got some information from uh, Sammy Awad and Holand. He said they've got Wi-Fi. See, that's the first thing I thought, Wi-Fi. If they've got Wi-Fi, I'm fine. Because that means I can, I can you know, get back to home, I can go on the internet and so on, and it must be, you know, it must be okay if they've got Wi-Fi. What I forgot to ask is, did they have water? Uh, and that actually turned out to be rather more important. But I never thought to ask that. And the answer is, yes, they do have water, but they only have it once a week. So the, the, the mains came on once a week. And I was there, I think, about two weeks before they said, it's okay to have a shower today. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> and they said, well, the water's on today, so you can do your washing and you can have a shower and so on. You know, and I thought, what am I supposed to do the other days? You know, so, so then I sort of learned to listen for when the pump was on and the water was on, and they pump water up into tanks in the roof, and then while it's off, then you have to be careful um, to, to use the water very sparingly. Um, 
Not only was the water very scarce, um, but there was one small electric fire in this apartment, and there were seven of us in the apartment, and it was very sociable because they all sat in a ring around this electric fire, including me, and it was quite cold in, um, in February, but if you plugged anything else in, if you, if you could plug a kettle in, but if you put the kettle in at the same time as the fire, then it blew all the electrics in the house. So it was quite an interesting place to, to try and uh, be. There was no grass anywhere, I think, really. Little soil, lots of concrete, but incredibly friendly, and the food was wonderful. Um, it was interesting, really, the, uh, the, uh, the food. I, I suppose the thing that made it a little unusual is that this gate here, this is the wall. The, one, the picture I showed you of the, of the wall just now, this is the other side of it here. Picture was taken just over the other side. So this is the wall here, and you may have seen in the other picture big metal gates. Well, most evenings this big metal gate opened, and in came um, army vehicles from the Israeli Defence Force, and they would come down the street and um, with guns and so on. And uh, the youth of the village would, would go out into the street and start throwing stones. So then they would fire tear gas and uh, so-called rubber bullets. Rubber bullets are a bit of a misname. They're a ball bearing covered in plastic. You wouldn't want to be hit by one of those, I think. Um, and, and so there was sort of, you know, general unrest, I think you would call it, in the evening. And I got quite used to this. I mean, I think we were, we were talking, Tracy and I, on Skype one evening. And I said, we have to stop the tear gas canisters just come through the window. And, uh, you know, Tracy thought that was a bit unusual. You know, but by the time I'd been there three weeks, it wasn't really very unusual. And the family just coped with it and said, oh, it's okay. We put some towels around and, you know, it'll go away and we'll carry on. So that's sort of what, uh, what life is a little, um, a little strange. As people, more and more people come and it gets crowded, they just build more rooms, usually up above. They just sort of keep putting another room on, on the top. So it's, it's, a, it's a very... Uh, uh, ad hoc sort of building. Um, so, this is a Palestinian house. Now, when, once you've been there a few weeks, anybody could tell you this is a Palestinian house. And the reason you know this is a Palestinian house is because it's got this black tank on the roof. Because every Palestinian house has at least one black tank on the roof. Because they don't get water continuously. So whenever they get water... They pump it to the black tank on the roof. And, and then when they don't have water, they, they use it over the coming days. The Israeli houses have unlimited supplies, sprinklers, swimming pools, and the water supply is never cut. And sometimes you can see a group of Palestinian houses, a group of Israeli houses, sort of side by side, really. The settlements are quite side by side. You can see the settlement, the settlement from here is just over the back here. Um, so that's one of the issues that you, if you're a Palestinian your water is, is highly controlled I'm, I'm going to tell you about um, four groups of people because obviously when, when it comes to it the important thing is about people and about their stories and, and wherever I went people would sit down and they'd offer me hospitality and then I would wait to hear their story and this first story is about the importance of the land. So this gentleman here, 
He's Ali Salum Salim Musa, and he's got a very large family. His children and grandchildren, number 32. Uh, yeah. And he lives with his family on the western fringe of the village of Al-Hadda. Now, I saw this several times, this village of Al-Hadda, and someone said to me, you, you know what this means, do you, Al-Hadda? So I said, no, I don't know what that means. They said, well, it's, you know it as St. George. And that explained why there was a big statue of St. George and the dragon at the entrance of this village. It's where we get the story of St. George and the, and the dragon, and this is where the story originated from the times of the Crusades. About five kilometres west of, of Bethlehem, and he owns and farms 30 hectares of land. When I sat down with him, he proceeded to tell me the names of his ancestors. Now, if I was to ask you this evening to, you know, to name your, you know, you could probably name your mother and your father and, and, your, mother and your grandparents, perhaps, but how far could you go back? He went back 11 generations and named all the family, all of his ancestors, 11 generations. And he wasn't looking at a laptop either, you know. He knew that. It reminded me of Matthew, you know, the beginning of Matthew. And you, and you see the genealogy and, and you think, you know, someone's painstakingly written that down. Never did I ever imagine that someone says, oh no, I'll tell you who it is, and, and recite them because they knew who their family was. And they'd all lived on this piece of land. He lived in a tiny shack on this land for 25 years, and then the children started to arrive, let alone the grandchildren, and so he started to build. These are these not, not very elaborate houses, as you can see, very simple, just uh, sort of breeze block type houses. And uh, the problem is that this area comes under the Oslo Accord. You may know something about that in the prison, but the, the, area, the land is divided into three types A, B, and C. Type C, area C, means that Israel has complete control, military control over the land. And it happens to be that as he lives on the edge of this village, it comes into the area that Israel, say, for security reasons, needs to be area C. So, so they control it. And you can't build a, a house in Al-Hadda, in this area, without a permit. And the problem is that no permit has been issued since 1967. So what do people do? They, they build anyway. They just get some bricks and they, uh, they start building. Uh, he doesn't have electricity or water. So when I told you before, you know, a Palestinian house and, and he's, got a, he's got a black tank on the roof. That's not because he has water once a week. It's because a lorry turns up and he buys water once a week from a lorry because he doesn't have water and he doesn't have electricity. Now, the, the root of the wall... This is the wall here. But, but in 2002, that wall was planned to come here. And so the Israelis built a military post alongside his property. They arrested the family and they took them into the, the camp and they demolished Ali Musa's house. So Ali Musa just started building it again. Two months after it was complete, he got another paper through the post, demolition order. So the house was, was due to be demolished. So he took it to the court, and uh, that was okay. Went to the court, and the demo demolition was stopped. So he thought that was fine. In 2004, 
the army turned up and demolished the house. So he started rebuilding the house again. 2006, they came and built this wall here. And the difficulty of that is that Ali Musa's land is here, on the other side of the wall. So he now has a one-hour journey by their mode of transport, which you can see in this picture here. Um, so one-hour journey by donkey to get to his land, to tend his land, because if you don't tend your land for three years, it's forfeit to the state. So you would lose this land. So in 2010, the bulldozers came again, even though he had a high court order um, from the Israeli high court, and the soldiers just ignored it and demolished the house. So he began rebuilding it. <laughs> it hasn't finished yet. In 2012, he received another demolition order. And he said to us, I do not cry for my house, I cry for my land. I am ready to pay my life for my land. And we looked at the land, and I don't think you would buy it. Let me put it this way. This land here, you can probably get an impression here, and this is terraced here, and it's probably better, but it's, 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 overall it's pretty poor land, but it's his life. And he said, I won't leave it. So I, uh, I left um, in uh, March, and in April, they came and demolished his house for the fourth time. Now after the third time, it, it, takes, a, it takes a bit of money to, to build these houses, and he'd run out of money. So basically he borrowed all the money, and he went to jail because he couldn't pay it because the mayor of Bethlehem said they would help him pay it, and he didn't, so he went to jail. So anyway, the, the, the fourth time it happened, the Turkish government have rebuilt it for him, because he hasn't got any money, and Bethlehem hasn't got any money, so, so Turkey has rebuilt the house. So it's become a bit of a, a symbol of, of the resistance, really. You know, it's just a house, but it's a symbol. Okay, so I'm going to move on to meeting... Uh, Myron. Myron here is, is a Jewish settler. And I was, in, I was reaching the end of my two-month stay there, and I'd met a lot of Palestinians, had a lot of stories, and I went to a conference, and I was sort of mulling over what I would say when I came back, and I thought, I really need to see, really need to talk to someone from the Jewish point of view here. And in the street in Bethlehem, I happened to walk beside someone who started talking to me, and he said, I'm a settler. And I was absolutely flabbergasted because there's huge red notices outside Bethlehem that say, if you enter here, you're in peril of your life. You know, it's a dangerous place to enter. It isn't, but that's what it says. And, and Jews generally do not enter into the Palestinian West Bank, you know, without good reason and so on. And here he was walking in the street. And, and you know, for some reason I still don't know, he said, would you like to come and visit the settlement? So, of course, I said yes. And he's in Gosh Etzion. Gosh Etzion, you may have heard of, where there were three young Jewish men that were abducted, and they came from the settlement in Gosh Etzion, where, where he lives, and they were abducted and killed. So, so that, was, uh, that, that was after I got back, and it was an incredibly sad event. But, uh, so I went to see the settlement, and so the settlement is an Israeli village built in the, the occupied West Bank and it's deemed by the UN to be, it's illegal under occupation for the occupying power to
to, to actually put, put, to put their own people into the country. That's not allowed under the, the rules of the UN and, and so on, the Geneva Convention. So, so it's, it's, it's illegal in international law, but, but it's, it's still incredibly interesting to see. So I, I turned up to see him, and um, the first thing he did was take me a, a, around to the uh, administrative office and uh, show me the, the Palestinians queuing there for permits. And, uh, and we heard sort of stories about uh, um, how they had to queue for three hours, and he was sort of helping them and talking to the people and so on. So he was really engaging with the Palestinians, even though he was in this illegal settlement. But the settlement was really lush, green, first time I'd seen green grass um, around. And here, there were two Israeli soldiers, and they were sitting, smoking a cigarette. First time I've seen Israeli soldiers without machine gun was here. And, uh, yeah, so we looked out over the neighbouring Palestinian village. In fact, we went with, I went with Myron to meet the leader of the local Palestinian village. And they had no, this is the Palestinian village here. As you'll know by now, you can tell the black uh, tank. And this is a very, very makeshift village. You know, it's, it's a shanty sort of town. And this is alongside Israel. So, the reason why the Palestinian village is like that and the settlement as like it is, is complex. And when Myron explains it, he says, well, the Palestinians are not very good at organising. But, of course, they, they don't have enough water to water the crops and, and so on. So it's, he admitted to me that he really struggled in his own mind to justify the Jews living in the land taken from the Palestinians. It was a very interesting discussion that he was trying to be a good man Good and good to others in a situation which was actually illegal. The third story is about Hebron. So Hebron is an incredibly uh, important place. We were met there by Walid here, Palestinian. So we, we, uh, we had two points of view here. And um, Hebron is a city of 220,000 Muslims. But right in the middle of Hebron is the Jewish settlement of 850 Jews. And the tension there is absolutely unbelievably bad. So there are 1,300 soldiers guarding the 850 settlers. There are 101 road closures, 126 cameras, watchtowers, and all the main all the shops in the main street. This is the main shopping street in Hebron. And they've all been closed because the tension is so great that they've all just been shut down to eliminate, you know, to, to minimise the hostility. And people are not allowed, Palestinians are not allowed to walk down the street anymore. <coughs> because it's a passage for the Jewish community. The reason that it's so important this is one of the, the reasons here, is this is the site, this, these are the tombs of the patriarchs. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Leah. The only one that's missing is Rachel, which we've already mentioned. And these, these there is a huge mosque on these sites. So for the last, just about a thousand years, it's been a mosque, and, and these... Uh, important um, tombs that were in the mosque. 
But there was a, a terrible massacre um, in, the, in the mosque, and as a result of that, the mosque is divided into two with metal bars, and one half is now a synagogue, and the other <coughs> half is a mosque. And, and so people can view through the metal bars. If, if you're a Muslim, you can look through the bars to see the other side, and, and same for the, for the Jews. So it, it, it's a very tense place. This is David Wilder. He come, he's one of the settlers, one of the Jewish settlers, and he told us his story from a Jewish perspective. And it was very different. He took us to the site of Abraham's house that they've excavated and showed us the spot where Abraham paid for the land four and a half thousand years ago. And that's sort of the origin of the justification why they say Hebron is the Jewish land and not the Palestinian land. They feel they're in a ghetto because there's 850 of them surrounded by over 200,000 Palestinians and they, they, can't, they don't have sort of free movement. They need protection all the time and so on. And, and there, there's been violence over the years between these two communities. So from his point of view, he was the one that was in a ghetto in this situation and... You know, in other places, the Palestinians feel they're in that because of the tension between the two communities. So, in, in terms of making it viable, there are there are other Jewish settlements, and, and so there's a road from here that goes out to the other Jewish settlements. And in the settlement, it's just Jewish, and it's it's rather more calm. And there are services, there are health cares and schools and so on, and, and so they bust out to do that. On the other hand, the Palestinian children have to cross this street to get to school, and they have to come through a turnstile because it's blocked off the pedestrians, and you have to go through a security camera check, and you have to show identity cards, and, and you have to queue up for hours, and can queue up for a couple of hours before they're allowed through to cross the road to go to the school on either side, and then the same on the way home. So if there's any tension then they won't open the, the, the barriers and they won't get to school. So, so life is, uh, is very, um, very complicated for both communities, really, there. So my final story is about a place which I think, even though I say lots of people, I think, don't know a great deal about what's happening in Israel and Palestine and the West Bank, even fewer know about the Jordan Valley because even the Palestinians can't get to the Jordan Valley. This is not coming up very well on here, so I'm just going to outline it. This is, this is Galilee in the north. This is, this is the West Bank. We're looking at the little eastern side of the West Bank here. So we're looking at a stretch of about 75 miles by 9. This is the Dead Sea down here. And, and this is this central rift valley and up here are, are actually effectively mountains and desert. So you've got a very narrow strip of land down here, which is very fertile. And it's, so it's originally watered by the, the Jordan, and now, uh, now the water is taken from the Jordan. It's about 30% of the West Bank. And the key thing here, as you can see, nearly 90% of it is designated to be Area C, which means it's under Israeli control. Now, what does that mean? Sometimes you hear about a solution in Israel-Palestine being a one-state and a two-state, and people say, oh, well, a two-state is not viable. 
And this is partly the reason why. Because in this land, nearly 50% of the land, this is Palestinian land of the West Bank, 50% is taken for farms, for settler farms, for growing the most amazing vegetables and, and fruits and herbs and absolutely amazing produce from Israel that comes from the West Bank. Um, so 50% of that land is taken for massive, massive farming. 46% is designated military land, which means the army come and put up a barbed wire fence around a piece of land, which previously was a Palestinian land, and say, if you don't go there for three years, then it becomes state land. Because they don't go there for three years, because there's barbed wire fence around it. So then it becomes military land, and then eventually it becomes Israeli land, and then it will become a settlement and a farm. And in the areas where the Palestinians used to graze their crops, in the, hill, in the hills was just free grazing, wasn't really designated, you just let your crops go in the hills, while they're nomadic, 20% is now nature reserve. Similarly, barbed wire fence around it, this is a nature reserve, you can't go in. So, so essentially virtually all of the land in the Jordan Valley has been cordoned off for use by Palestinians. So not so long ago, 92, there were a quarter of a million Palestinians in this valley, and now there are 60,000. And virtually all of those, 50,000, are in Jericho, which is here, which is the only Area A land. It's the only Palestinian place. So basically, all the Palestinian gets moved into the urban area. Um, and they move, get moved off the land. Um, and so there's only about 10,000 left in this area, 10,000 Palestinians, in very scattered communities. Okay, so let's look at the... the and one part of it is, is to do with the water supply. So Palestinians in this area, if, if they live in this area A, which is Palestinian area, they have a water pipe. And they get 64 litres a day. The UN minimum is 100 litres a day. And so they get less than the UN recommended minimum amount. And if you're in area C, you get no water, which means you buy this. That's uh, three cubic metres of water, costs you 12 pounds. And the f one farmer we spoke to bought two of those a week. And he just had a few animals, but he, he couldn't water crops with those. You can imagine, limited what you can do. You can drink the water and you can, and so on. You can't water crops of them. Um, and, if you click the slide, click to the next one. Last, in, in a year, the settlers for the, for the crops used 45 million cubic metres of water. And, and that water comes from underground aquifers. So the water falls on the hills, goes through the limestone rocks, goes underground and it's pumped out um, from wells. It also comes from the River Jordan, and, and perhaps the only disappointing thing in a pilgrimage to Jordan, to the um, to Israel-Palestine, is when you go to the baptismal site, where um, John baptised Jesus, and you go to see this magnificent river, well, 98% of all the water that was in the Jordan in 1945 is now extracted and, and used. So it only has 2% of, of the water. 
So when you saw the, the bishops baptizing us, I have to say, it was a, the, the water wasn't, uh, you know, it was, a t- it was a muddy stream basically, and the water was all is all pumped out and is used for watering the land. We stopped by the roadside to see one of these Palestinian families, this 10,000. And uh, we sat down, and as, as always, they, they came out and they served us with coffee, and they, and they started talking. After a little while, we had tea, and then we had cold drinks, and, and so we carried on talking. Again, they have no electricity and no water. And at the back of their house, I don't think you won't be able to see it quite as it's in here, the back of their house is a large well actually in their land and it's pumping all the water out of their land um, but they don't have any access to it. They have ten goats and two sheep and the children took us and and showed us the animals in these shelters. Um, But it's very difficult to keep such a family going on on a farm like that. And this is one of the issues they have. The women end up working in the settlement this is what's called assimilation, where the Palestinians get to work in the Israeli uh, factories and so on, and they have to because they haven't got any other work, so they end up working in there, and they get paid about thirteen pounds for a day's work. There's a minimum age of minimum wage of four pounds an hour, but the settlements don't pay it because nobody's going to challenge them. So they, they live very, very frugally. And at the end of this discussion, where they were telling us about their life, which is just about as difficult a life as, as I could imagine, they said, please stay for lunch. And we said to our guide, well, we can't, we can't stay with this family for lunch, because there were, there were um, three of us, three visitors, plus two sort of guides taking us around, five of us, and we said, we, you know, we can't, uh, we can't accept that. And they said, I'm sorry, you can't refuse because it's not acceptable when a Muslim family invites you to lunch to say, no, you know, that's, uh, that, that's not, not done. So, you know, please sit down and enjoy your lunch. So they brought out a huge place, plate of, of chicken and vine leaves. Now, in Bethlehem, I quickly found... But when you went for your lunch, you didn't ask for chicken or lamb because you pay three times the price of what you pay if you had if you had vegetables. And, and chicken is expensive, and, and they don't have many chickens. Um, and so they fed us this delicious meal. And the women and the children all sat round and watched while we, as the guests, ate this meal. And when we left, we were still wondering whether we'd eaten their meal and whether they were going to eat anything that day. But after a lot of uh, shaking hands and a uh, few tears, I think, we had to admit we'd never experienced such grace and hospitality and such generosity anyway. We were strangers on the road, and they gave us their very best. So... But the hospitality wasn't just a one-off. Um, this is a Muslim community, really, essentially, I'm staying in. 2% of people are Christians, but almost everybody I met was Muslim. And they were the kindest people I've ever met. I went out one day on a walk, 
And as you do, you know, I took uh, took a drink and I took a drink in my rucksack and I've got got food and so on. And uh, I got towards the end and this this family were there and they called me over and they said, uh, "Have you have you got any food?" So I said, "Just thank you. I've, I've got my lunch." And they said, "Is it hot?" I said, "No, it's not hot. No." And they said, "Ours is." So, so they just called me over and so I had joined their barbecue. And I have to say, on the way down there, someone had invited me in for coffee on the way. So when you know Jesus sent the disciples off two by two and said, um, you know, don't take anything with you. Now I know if you, if you go in in the West Bank, you can do it. I don't think you'd do it here, would you? Really, you wouldn't get very far here. But in the West Bank, everybody will feed you and invite you in, give you coffee, and tell you their story. So here's some uh, other memories. One of the, the, the favourite stories, the Palestinian Palestinian Christians that I met. I did I did go to a, a church where the Palestinian Christians and they would chuckle with this because they, they tell it to all the tourists every time that every you know, every time there's a new set of tourists. They say, How long have you been a Christian? And the answer is about two thousand years. <laughs> because they've been there since Jesus' time. And uh, another surprise is my Muslim host Ayad one day said to me, uh, do you think it's alright if I follow Jesus? And I have to say, I'm not an evangelical at heart. And I thought, oh crumbs, what am I going to say now? So I sort of asked him a bit more. And it was quite interesting because he was a very, very kind man. Um, he was very kind to look after me. And he, he, um, he actually used to get some criticism from his Muslim men friends not least because he did the washing up and they didn't think he ought to do the washing up and, and other things, he didn't beat the children at school, he was a school teacher and they thought he was a bit soft on the children and there were lots of ways in which he was very kind hearted and was trying to follow the, the teachings of Jesus, which he knew and I was immensely impressed that here was a Muslim, he said to me I, I can't change my Muslim culture, you know he's on his birth certificate, it says Muslim. When you're born there, it's stamped Christian, Muslim, Jew. You know, that's what you are by birth. You know, it's not conversion or whatever. And he has to stay a Muslim because his family is Muslim, traditions are Muslim, culture is Muslim. But he said, can I believe in Jesus? I said, I'm sure you certainly can. And uh, I think that's what he's doing. So I learned to travel light. And I learned something about hope in the midst of hopelessness. Ali Salim Musaj teaches you about hope in the, in, the, uh, in the midst of hopelessness. And another wonderful thing was how the customs of the Bible that you read in the stories are still there. The way that people behave, and the way that hospitality, the way they treat you, and so on, are, are reminiscent of the Bible stories I never thought I would experience what is life in the Bible now, and, but I did. So what happened when I got back? There for two months. So in June, we had a day, St. John's, we had a day of prayer and reflection. And in July, the PCC voted unanimously to become a Kairos community. So working for justice and peace. And in October, the PCC approved our programme action, which we're, we're working through. So what are the next steps? 
well, talking to you today is one of the next steps. Talking to people in our in our deanery, talking to other Christians. I'm going to talk to the U3A in uh, in April, um, and, and sharing with people the stories that you get here because I don't think they're well known. I don't think so many people know what's happening there. And, and seeking ways to work for justice and, and peace for all the people, for the Jews and for the Palestinians. Um, I'm, uh, I'm now actually helping Kyle Spritton on their national website, and uh, so to helping other churches to to join the uh, the Kairos movement. And I'm very pleased to say our church is now planning a trip for the parishioners to go out February next year. Um, for more people to, to learn. But the main thing is to pray for a peaceful and just outcome for all the people who live there. I'm going to close with a few observations on right and wrong, because that's, uh, that's what I was to talk about. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, what it comes to is two groups of people feel that the land is theirs. And one feel it was given to them by God and by the British. So we have a bit of a hand in this. Um, we have a part to play in that we actually gave the land to the Jews. And, and the others, because they've lived there for at least a thousand years you know, on the land, and, and feel it's theirs because they're there. They have always been there as they see it. And, and when two groups feel like that, it's, it's difficult to solve it. So questions, is, is it right to occupy a land for 67 years? Even, even if it's to achieve security. Can you achieve security by keeping another country um, under your security? Is it right to control the water for only one ethnic group? Now, is it right to throw stones... I said not to mention firing rockets, but is it right to throw stones? I think I think we can probably all agree that we wouldn't fire rockets. I think that's I hope you know I hope no, we wouldn't be firing rockets. But I was asked why I didn't go outside and throw stones and help the people there, and I was sort of challenged to say why don't you go out there, you know, with the tear gas and the, and the rubber bullets and help us. And many of the internationals did. Some, most of the young internationals went out there and did that. And I said to um, Ayad, I said, you know, I, I can't accept that violence of any sort is the, is the way to do this. And I'm not sure it's, you know, I don't think it's right that the young people go out there, even though it's a sort of right of passage for the young people to, to do something about their situation. And, and strangely, shortly after I got back here, I heard that the, the elders of the, the refugee camp had told the youngsters not to go out there. And they quite well behaved, the youngsters, and they didn't go out on the streets. So there, were, there was quiet out on the streets. So the soldiers turned up, and there were no young people out on the streets to throw stones. So there was a bit of a pause. And then new trucks came in, different trucks, different army trucks. And they sprayed sewage on all the houses. And the next night, they were throwing the stones. Um, so, would I throw a stone? I don't know. Lots of Israeli men and women suffer a lot of trauma because of 
what they're asked to do on behalf of the Israeli state. Um, and even worse, I think, is many, most Palestinian children grow up seeing only two types of Jews, soldiers with machine guns and settlers who are violent them. And, and when they grow into adulthood, their opinion of, of, of Jews is inevitable. Um, and that's got to change. So the Israeli government has got the sixth largest military might in the world. And, and it's impossible to fight. I mean, the Palestinians have tried to fight it several times and always come off disastrously badly. Palestinians view it as unjust and, and they oppose, mostly by throwing stones. So my conclusion is Palestinians want justice and Jews want peace. And we want both. You can only have both because you can't have peace without justice. I mentioned Myron earlier on, and, and, and again, quite strangely, about three weeks ago, I'd got an email from him, and I hadn't had any contact with him since I'd seen him in the, in the, uh, um, in the settlement. And he picked up a message from me, and we were, you can tell we're both avid Facebook readers, because the users, because I put a message on a year ago, and he responded to it eight, uh, ten months later. And he said, oh, this is my email address. So I wrote to my email, and since then we've had emails going backwards and forwards. And in the last email, he, he put this comment to me, and I, I thought it was a suitable last line. He said, the story and reality are almost as convoluted as my mind and soul. Thank you very much for listening. Can you hear me if I speak here? Can you hear me at all? Right. Well, we'll, get, we'll try with the handheld microphone because I don't think everybody will want to come up here to ask their questions. But put your hand up and I'll bring this um, apparently defective handheld mic. <laughs> but but, but it, it, just, it just means that I'm more comfortable if someone's speaking into a microphone. Um, I'm sure Ken will be happy to answer some questions. Um, you just raise your hand and I'll, I'll bring the microphone to you. Um, I'm alright. I'm wired. 
when I came back, when we came back from the first television with the bishop, you know, we spoke about the pilgrimage, which was mostly religious sites and Christian sites and so on. And, and there, there were a number of people at church that said, you know, we would just love to go and, and see the religious sites. So the main purpose of it is for people that have never been to Israel and Palestine to go and see, you know, to see a gallery, to go on a photo and see a gallery and, and so on, and see Capernaum and all, all these wonderful places. Because, you know, that, that's, that's our original connection with, with Israel and Palestine, is, is these incredible stories of the Bible. And that brings the Bible to life and reinvigorates your faith. So that's, that's the core of it. Was. But inevitably, you know, we will have some discussions in the evening with, with people, Palestinians, and so on. We're going to stay in Bethlehem and try to engage with some of the Palestinians. So while we're there, we hope to, to be seeing groups and talking to groups and so on. Some of you must be retired.
two different places in time. Because mm. what he was what you've seen there really is, as you say, concrete with no grass. Mm. And all the dust presumably that you would visit. But having also seen all the blood, there's no vehicles or anything of that nature shown on in your slides. Was that purposely done? Or is it the, diff the difficulty of importing or the likes of fuel and so forth? The, when I said I was um, you know, got to the end of the, the bus journey into Bethlehem, and, uh, and uh, somehow the Palestinians, I think probably at the top of the list is not organisation, you know, I wouldn't say. And uh, I arrived at this bus stop, and the person that was actually fixing it for me had, got, had to go on somewhere else. So I didn't know where he'd gone. And so I was standing at this bus stop with no idea where I was staying, what the name of the person I was staying. And eventually I got this call to say, somebody's going to come and pick you up. So this very quite smart car arrived to pick me up. And it, it was I. Um, and, and I was quite surprised because I knew I was going to stay in the, the refugee camp. And I did not expect him to turn up in, in what was really quite a smart car. And, and so drove me home. And in the whole two months I was there, I went to it once. And I went to it once when I asked him to take us. He took us out into the, uh, to, to um, we were going across the Hebron, um, across the desert. And he found someone available that was going to take us out into the desert. And he took us in his car. And basically, the, the ones that the car paid for petrol. So basically, he could only drive that car to and from work, and, and he did nothing else. His family never went out to that car in two months of being it, It's very strange. You know, although we had a car, we had to have a car to work, and it wasn't used anything other than that journey. So I had very little experience of, of, um, of a vehicle too, because I was, I was on foot most of the time, occasionally I got on the bus. Um, so most of it was walking and uh, Bus, so yeah, I didn't. Uh, but I mean, Bethlehem is a busy, is a busy place. But, but one of the um, one of the stories is about what's the name of the Christmas church? Oh, Mitchell. Mitchell Rayham. There's a bit of one called Bethlehem the Siege, and he bought a car. And soon after he bought a car, they they, they started the separation wall. And basically, what they did is came with large concrete blocks and just dropped them in the middle of the roads. So he has this car that can never drive more than a mile and a half really out of Bethlehem because he can't drive it anywhere because you know, he doesn't have a class. He needs a permit to drive out. So, so for a lot of people, car is useless because you can't get Palestinian, you can't go anywhere. You can't go to the sea, you can't go to, to, to Jerusalem, you can't go anywhere. You know, so, so they use buses because you know, they basically can't travel anywhere. Yeah. Inspection. They're not allowed to. There, there are lots of roads which are Israelis only. And so the, the and they have different number plates on the cars. Israelis have different number plates to Palestinians. And so if you're on that road and you're Palestinian, you just be stopped and arrested. So so there's quite a, quite a lot of Thank you. 
black huge thing, it's quite an aspiration. I, I would you know, I, I wouldn't aspire to, you know, to the rest of the world. What, what I particularly aspire to is getting the Church of England to support justice and peace in, you know, in a positive way in, in, in Palestine and in China. And I, I'm sure the, the Anglican Church will say nationally that it does. But that's a complicated issue in the Anglican Church. But the way that people can work, Christians around the world, in America, is, is mobilizing, Brazil is mobilizing, Netherlands is mobilizing. And the boycott, divestment, the sanction campaign is going worldwide where com- companies are divesting from any company that is getting really heavily involved in, in the West Bank and Israel. And so companies that get involved in the Jordan Valley. I mean, I read uh, in the Israeli report, Jewish report, that said basically they virtually sell no fruit and vegetables to Europe anymore on the Jordan Valley. Because Europe says we're not buying from Israel. So this, this movement is growing worldwide where people are aware of what's happening and applying pressure to consumer um, pressure by not buying it or, or by. Um, um, I mean, our church has, uh, has just changed its waste disposal company because Viola is very much involved in, in the West Bank. And, and we, I phoned up and, and they said, why did you remove the contract? And, we said, and I said, because of Israel and Palestine. And they said, we're not involved in Israel and Palestine. I said, just look on your website. You know, just look on the internet and you'll find a lot. So these things are having an effect. But the biggest, biggest, biggest thing is that America gives vast support to Israel. Three, um, three billion dollars million dollars a day. Um, and, and, and so lots of the settlement, lots of the, you know, the military and so on, is it, actually paid for by America. And, and so there, even though you know, Obama's relationship with, with Netanyahu is about as low as you can get, nevertheless, America still gives vast amounts of aid to Israel. And at some point, you know, I think America, gradually Americans are changing, I think. You know, when it comes to the point where they say, look, we're not going to give this vast amount of aid to Israel unless you start you know, behaving like you know, the democratic state that you purport to be, you know, it's difficult to claim you're a democratic state at the moment. But there's elections just coming up in a few weeks' time, and uh, you know, that's a very uncertain time. So it may change, it may change there. But it's really individuals can make a difference by what they do, what they buy, you know, what, what they talk about and so on. I know it's, it's small, but apartheid ended. And, and this is not so different from apartheid, actually. Mm-hmm.
And although we should say many, many Jews fear that, you know, I would say the majority of Jews are living a happy, contented life, you know, in the settlements and are not even aware of it. I sat next to a lady on the plane coming home and discovered that she was a Russian Jew. She lived in terrible conditions in Russia. She was offered the opportunity to come to Israel. She knew nothing about the history, anything about politics, anything. Offered a wonderful accommodation in Tel Aviv. It's very happy. And I said, what about the West Bank? She said, I know nothing about the West Bank. And there are many, in, in the Jordan family, the Jews had, there was a survey of Jews, and 60% of Jews did not know the Jordan Valley was occupied. 60% of people did not know it was They live, you know, they do terrible to know. And it's behind the wall, behind the security. They don't go there. And it's, it's, um, I don't think the Jews know the true story. Um, but I, I'm the last person to say there's an easy solution because an awful lot of very good people have tried to find a solution and it's heartbreaking that it still goes on. So I don't know what the answer is. I think there's only, a, only God knows the answer to that. I wonder if that's a good point to draw this to having a similar talk before. I must say it was delight to hear it again and um, especially those parts where you became personally involved and the memories were evoked and uh, it's clearly had a huge effect on you, it's probably had a huge effect on Chase as well but um, thank you for coming and sharing that with us, we're really uh, grateful to you um, and I think everyone will go away from here uh, with a different perspective, something different to think about um, about a situation with which we thought at least we were broadly familiar. So thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Um, just a couple of things before you go, if you wouldn't mind. Um, I've mentioned the, the fair, fair trade products here. Um, we're very grateful um, to already a number of people to Richard for helping set up in here but also to um, Chris and Sarah for doing the coffee this evening um, we have quite a blank rotor list for coffees for subsequent evenings uh, I've brought it over and put it on, on the font so that if you feel that you would um, like to take a turn of doing the refreshments beforehand would you mind signing up for one of the blank spaces uh, as you leave uh, also there, um, I've um, rather cheaply put out a collection plate. If you'd like to pop something in there as a, as a contribution to the costs of the lecture series, we'd be really grateful. Um, next week's lecture, which will be back in the hall, uh, but you'll realise that when you come to this dark, empty building, <laughs> um, is another local celebrity. It's um, Canon Andrew Marston, who many of you will know uh, is vicar and has been for many years of St. Sebastian's. And he's going to be talking uh, about a subject which is closely related to our topic for uh, next week, which is uh, Jesus as Messiah, and what it means for him to have been anointed, selected by God, and what it means for us to be anointed people too. So it'll be quite a different style of lecture, but if you've heard Andrew talk, you'll know that he's always got something really uh, interesting and challenging 
to say. So it's the same time, quarter to eight for eight o'clock. If you don't have um, a brochure of the whole sermon uh, sermon and lecture series, uh, they're the Mauve ones, also on the font. And if you uh, weren't in church here on Sunday, there's also a copy of the handouts that we used addressing the rights and wrongs that came up out of the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So thank you all very much for coming, especially those who who come from uh, churches other than um, Finch in California. It's lovely to see you. You are, of course, welcome to come again if you would like to. But thank you all very much indeed.